Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This episode of Dialogues in Dermatology has been sponsored by Almoral. Hello, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Harrison Wynn, and I am a fellow in micrographic surgery and dermatologic oncology at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Tiering to discuss actinic keratoses. Dr. Tiering is a clinical professor of dermatology at the University of Texas Medical School and the medical director of the Center of Clinical Studies. He has published nearly a thousand research articles, if not more, and has completed over 300 clinical trials as a principal investigator. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Tiering. Thank you. It's indeed an honor to be on Dialogues in Dermatology and to be interviewed by Dr. Wynn. So let's first talk about the well-known established therapies, liquid nitrogen, 5-4-Uracil, diclofenac, Inginol, Meputate, and PDT, photo or photodynamic therapy. Could you tell us, tell the listeners about some of these therapies that you like and that you use clinically, perhaps why you like them, and perhaps what their weaknesses are in terms of their deployment for treating AKs? Well, absolutely. As Dr. Wynn said, uh, there are many choices in treatment. Now, of course, the majority of the people we see are people who are familiar with some type of treatment. And if they have one AK and ever been to not just a dermatologist, maybe they went to their primary care physician and met their friendly liquid nitrogen. Well, of course, I have to explain if they've never had it, that they're going to get frostbite, which of course you would never meet anybody with frostbite in uh, South Texas, unless uh, you went to the Northern part of the country in the wintertime. So I said, this is going to be something that you have to be ready for because this is the coldest you've ever felt in your life. And of course, that's what is used as a treating uh, method for individual AKs. Now, of course, all of the other things that Dr. Wynn just mentioned are beyond liquid nitrogen, but doesn't have to be exclusive of liquid nitrogen. Now, I do want to digress a moment and mention that Everything that I've said thus far and everything I'm going to say is very well summarized in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in the position statement that was published back in April of 2021. And just for the listeners, so they can read the details far beyond anything we have time for at the moment. If the volume is 85 and electronic pages 209 to 233. So you've got many pages with a vast amount of detail that were summarized by dermatologists throughout the country. Not only those that live in the sunny south and some that live even in the frozen northland because people who grow up in the frozen northland sometimes even get sun exposure, not just the summer. They get sun exposure when they go south for the vacation, and sometimes they get way too much sun exposure. And if they ever had a sunburn, they're probably more at risk for getting a skin cancer. So that brings us then to the topic of all of the treatment options we have. And uh, so we'll talk about those that are um, available to the practicing dermatologists, and most of which they're very familiar with, 
And anybody who's practiced for many years probably started off with their favorite topical as being the only one they had, and that's 5-fluorouracil. Now, we explained to the patient that we don't want to freeze their entire sun-exposed body because that's just too much frostbite for anybody. And we really know two things. The patient isn't going to tolerate a large number of uh, acne keratosis being frozen because it's somewhat painful to some patients more than others, but not too many patients like liquid nitrogen. So we would explain that, yeah, we can freeze those that are particularly thick, as we call hypertrophic actinic keratosis. The thicker they are, the less likely they're going to go away with a cream or other uh, modality. So I do favor freezing the thicker ones. Of course, if it's very hypertrophic and it's been frozen before, then that's a good candidate for a biopsy right there. Now, of course, if it is uh, something beyond just a hypertrophic AK, it may be a cutaneous horn because patients sometimes come in and say, I'm growing horns. Well, indeed, that is a dermatological term. So what do cutaneous horns often have at the surface of that horn is perhaps a squamous cell carcinoma. So cutaneous horns probably aren't going to go away with any freezing or any cream. They need to be biopsied, in my opinion, just like hypertrophic AKs, particularly hypertrophic AKs that didn't go away with the previous freeze. So let's say that all of us are going to start off if the patient comes in with just a few AKs with liquid nitrogen. But again, we know two things. Patients aren't going to tolerate a extremely large number of AKs being frozen, and the dermatologist isn't going to get paid for more than 15 a day in one session. So we have two limitations, one for the dermatologist, one for the patient. But that doesn't mean we can't use liquid nitrogen as our first line of treatment, but we don't have to stop there. So we tell the patient, okay, this hopefully will get rid of it. If it doesn't, if it's still there in a month and come back, we'll probably have to biopsy it, if not refreeze it. And that means that we don't get 100% success. If I freeze 20 AKs, I can't guarantee you that all 20 of them are going to go away. But I guarantee you one thing, they're going to look worse before they look better. So be prepared for that part. And then if they are willing to put up with the erythema two minutes later, the possibility of a little vesicles uh, as a result of uh, freezing and the general looking worse before they look better, then we would freeze all of them if that's a few or the most hyperkeratotic ones if uh, they are several and then choose field therapy for the remaining ones. Now, field therapy is something that of course is often spoken of in the literature as monotherapy. It's not because we all use monotherapy versus individual AK therapy with liquid nitrogen. And of course, there is the alternative, which is somewhat more expensive, that is to use a laser to get rid of them. But again, most of us don't expect that we're going to get reimbursed to use a laser on AK. So we use liquid nitrogen as a cytodestructive method, which of course is going to freeze anything in its path as we uh, tell to the patients. So if the patient has had liquid nitrogen before, 
or has a very, very large number of AKs, it's time for field therapy. Now, field therapy has overwhelmingly been studied as monotherapy. There's a limited number of studies in combination. And I'm a, a proponent of combination therapy if they have ones that would be best frozen. And field therapy, as I explained to the patients, is something that can be applied to the less obvious ones because everything that we see on the surface or we feel, if it's too subtle to see even under magnification, needs to be treated, but that's not the whole picture. Every AK we consider the tip of the iceberg. There is actinic damage where we can't see or feel an AK. So how do we address that? Because it's just an AK under the surface, just incubating, so to speak. And that's where field therapy comes in. So what are the limitations of field therapy in general, before we get the specific ones, is that most of the publications look at 25 square centimeters treated over a certain amount of time. And then the patient comes back for evaluation not only for clearance, but the important continuation is to follow them up for recurrences. Now, in a study where you've gotten photographic proof and maybe even some uh, other diagrams that the 25 square centimeters was exactly one place or another, the person's scalp or on the balding, well, particularly the balding scalp of a, of a senior citizen, and uh, so that is studies, real life is no one wants 25 square centimeters to turn red for several weeks and be irritated just to have the adjacent 25 square centimeters treated next. And so sometimes the package insert based upon the FDA approval will say treat these 25 square centimeters. So that's where we deviated a bit from what's in the package insert because no one wants to spend months and months and months treating 25 square centimeters at a time. So field therapy means the entire field of damage. And so that means we have to go a bit beyond what's in the package insert for most of these medications. And so we tell them that with uh, any effective field therapy, we have a similar shortcoming to using cryotherapy, and that is it's going to look worse for it looks better. So if it doesn't, then, you know, it's probably not very effective. And if it does, then the patients often come back and say, you didn't tell me it's going to look this bad. It looks like I've gotten the worst sunburn I've had in my life, or is it infected, or various questions that are rarely the case. And of course, we have to, quote unquote, hold the patient's hand to get uh, her through field therapy. And so then that brings us to the question of which field therapy, returning to the first one available to us, as many of us in our practice for many years learned about five still in our residencies. And so we have many choices on uh, five fluorosyl um, preparations and the uh, choices of duration of frequency or do we do it once a day or more often? 
Most people don't tolerate more than once a day. So those that can put up with twice a day might have a shorter duration. But of course, the published studies going back over the last couple of days, um, particularly pointing out those because they're larger and uh, better controlled, are that they went anywhere from one week to two weeks to an entire 28 days. And of course, got increasing efficacy, but uncommonly increasing irritation on the patient's skin and makes it very difficult for the patient to, to tolerate, but it does work. Now, of course, we're not going to say which one is best because there is not uh, an even playing field between those that are available in the generic form, which is much easier to get with on someone who has Medicare. And therefore, since we're dealing with a, a high percentage of the Medicare population who have difficulty getting anything with a brand name covered, then of course, uracil has been the gold standard for field therapy for many decades. But in the last couple of decades, there has been another choice, and that is Emicamod. Now, Emicamod, of course, um, was originally marketed under its brand name, and then it uh, became generic. And fortunately for the patient, it's covered by the vast majority of insurances, even Medicare. Of course, I always say Emicamod, even though some people might recognize this brand name, which I'm not going to see on dialogues and dermatology, because it's only available in the 5% form generically. There were less concentrated forms available under another brand name, but they would never be covered for everyone, like 5% of Emicamod is. What's the limitation on Emicamod versus the 5-fluorouracil is? It comes in very inconvenient packets. Now, these little packets that I tell the patients you're going to get a bunch of little packets that look like the little packets of the, of the ketchup or mustard or ever what at the uh, fast food joint. Well, there is no choice for a large tube of Imicomod simply because that's the way it was FDA approved and even the generics are only going to be available in these packets that always say one-time use. Well, I'm not a strong believer in one-time use because if this patient doesn't need the entire packet, which I always tell them, put a light layer because otherwise they're just wasting it, then the packet, if it contains a drop of the cream, uh, if they can squeeze that drop out the next night, then well not because it's still going to uh, be effective. So I tell them that it's not like milk, it's not gonna go bad on the counter overnight. So if you can get past the limitation of the little packets, it has efficacy approaching that of 5-fluorouracil. In some studies better, some studies not. But then again, the studies on these two medications, which are the ones that are the most easily available for the majority of my patients who have Medicare or similar insurances that never pay for brand names, is that the Imacomod was used at various time points and always made the patient, when it worked, look worse for the look better. But then further studies after its approval for actinic keratosis a couple of decades ago 
word, you could do a variation on the theme. So one of our colleagues did studies where he told the patients to put on the imacomod nightly for two consecutive weeks, at which point the patient's probably going to have a lot of erythema and scaling and irritation, but tolerable in most patients. Then they simply wait a couple of weeks. And then they wait a couple of weeks, and then it goes from bright red to pink and starts looking normal again. And then if the patient uh, looks in the mirror and says, well, I think most actinic keratoses are gone, then I might stop it, or I might have a few actinic keratoses, at which point they may want to be more selective in their field therapy and do another two weeks if necessary. Now, if they do a two week on, two weeks off, repeat this a couple of times and still have some, those are the ones that are probably good candidates for a biopsy or cryotherapy because if they can't be gotten rid of with a couple of rounds of, of the two week on, two week off, or and that's imacomod or many of the variations on the theme of hypochlorouracil, it's certainly time for a biopsy. And so these, again, were studied for the most part as monotherapy, but again, I do choose not only to do something that has a few publications to base it up, that is, freeze the more hyperkeratotic ones and do field therapy for the less hyperkeratotic or for the field where there's acting damage. But most of these studies allowed the patient to have a little rest period to recover from the cryotherapy before they started the field therapy. I'm a believer that if you're to get the skin all erythematous and irritated and the patient being a somewhat uncomfortable and definitely looking worse, why prolong it? Patients are going to be less compliant if you prolong the therapy. So if you've disrupted the epithelium with some cryotherapy, then I'm a proponent of starting it sooner versus later. Don't wait till they've completely recovered uh, from all of the quote-unquote frostbite of the liquid nitrogen, but rather to initiate their field therapy in the next few days. And so they are going to indeed have a very brisk response that they get it over with faster. So that's my favorite combination, but not my only combination. And of course, I'm talking about quote-unquote favorite way of doing things over the past couple of decades, but there are new medications. Now, of course, while we're talking about field therapy, there's PDT. Now, not every dermatologist can do PDT because that requires a lot of preparation and hand-holding. And so when they have the facilities and have the patient who's going to be compliant, PDT works quite well. So that is indeed an option for many but not all dermatologists. But for any dermatologist, no matter if they don't have a setup to be doing PDT, they can do cryo and they can do field and they can do combination, which brings us, of course, to other choices for the field therapies. Now, of course, the field therapy that I would say in my experience and that of my colleagues that was used to some degree more in the past and less in the present is diclofenac. And diclofenac is something that has a relatively low spectrum of efficacy 
which is the bad part of it, but it isn't very irritating compared to some of these other things. So if the patient cannot tolerate the inflammation of the cryo and or field therapy with the mucamod or the fluorouracil, then of course that is an option, but it's not a very effective option in my opinion. But then we have neurotherapies. Now, there was, of course, a few years where we had an alternative therapy that I can only uh, mention for historical perspective. And of course, that was a therapy was uh, the therapy that was on the market and used with some degree of effectiveness and then removed from the market because of the lack of some possibilities of side effects. Now, I don't know if we want to go into that therapy or not because it's no longer available. So just to talk about those that are available, they can go into the most recent one, which of course is mentioned somewhat more briefly in the J review. And that therapy is the terbenabulin. And terbenabulin is the most recently FDA approved and I participated in the study that led to the FDA approval of this medication. And so in the last couple of years, after having participated in the study and seen the results with this topical appointment, that um, it is my favorite of the uh, field therapies simply because it is effective in a short five-day application. So this medication, terminabulin, is the one that has the unique mechanism of action, which was one reason I participated in the studies, because it is a tubulin polymerization inhibitor, but it also is an inhibitor of SARC kinase signaling. And so the studies, which we published last February in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, as February last year, 2021, were done in a placebo-controlled, and placebo here, of course, was the matching ointment fashion by dermatologists throughout the country. And like had been done with other medications that are used in field therapy, we were restricted to this 25 square centimeter contiguous area containing four to eight actinic keratoses. But the good thing about it all was that it was only five consecutive days. So there's no field therapy that's that short. And because it's only five days, by the time they start getting any erythema or irritation on their skin, then five days is up. And so they've completed the therapy. So we had a very high rate of compliance because there was no reason not to be compliant when there was minimal local irritation. And when it happened, it usually was happening after the fifth day of application anyway. So the results of the studies that led to the FDA approval that were in that article in the New England Journal of Medicine is a complete clearance in the first trial occurred in 44% of the patients. And of course, in the vehicles, there were only a very low percentage of 5% that uh, cleared. 
And so why would anything clear with the vehicle? Well, that undoubtedly was the spontaneous uh, regression. And the patients uh, tolerated the uh, erythema, which was seen in 91% of the patients, and the flaking or scaling in 82%. But flaking and scaling of actin keratosis is actually a good thing. And of course, they had a little bit of discomfort that they would call pain, but this was very, very mild pain in 10% and itching or pruritus in 9%, all of which resolved within a week or two after they put the fifth application on. So the conclusion of this trial is that the 1% ointment applied once daily or once nightly for five consecutive nights was superior to the vehicle for the treatment of AKs, not only at the two-month evaluation, but was associated with only very mild, local, and transient skin reactions. And of course, the other important question on any treatment is the recurrence rate. And so this is certainly something that led to not only the approval, but led to usage. But again, where are the limitations? Well, the limitations there are that it's only available as a brand name. So that makes it more difficult to obtain, not impossible, but more difficult to obtain for our senior citizens on Medicare. But when we can convince the insurer to pay for it, patients really are quite happy with it as field therapy. But again, no field therapy is 100% effective. So indeed, I often use this medication as uh, field therapy in combination with the liquid nitrogen. And so the terbanopilin is now my field therapy of choice when I can get it for my patients. So I tell them that, of course, this is effective as nodal therapy or more effective as combination therapy. But then if they have new AKs at their six-month follow-up, for example, they wonder, well, is this a recurrence of the same one? There is the difficulty in the daily practice of dermatology versus clinical trials, because we usually don't remember exactly where on the sun-exposed skin that AK was that went away six months ago. So is it a new one or is it a recurrence? That is somewhat a challenging question, but there's no question that we've got to treat it if there's an AK reappears in the area. And so we always encourage the patients that if our therapies, the monotherapy or combination therapy, do not rid the patient after, say, a month of the completion of that therapy, then they can return for further therapy or a biopsy. But generally, I would say that if they have a history of skin cancer, then they should come back no later than six months. And if they have no history of skin cancer and have very few actate keratoses, I encourage them to come back on yearly visits, but of course, always encourage them to prevent AKs or future ones. There's no way to prevent what's already damaged and been done by the 
sun avoidance protective clothing and sunscreen. So we always tell patients that they don't have to wait their next appointment to come back if they need to come back. Uh, Dr. Wynn, uh, any comments or anything? That's a wonderful overview, Dr. Turing. And I, you know, I appreciate your insight on the importance of combination therapy and then especially really keying in our listeners into this emerging therapy, terbanabulin ointment, something that I'm not familiar with, but we'll be looking to deploy in, in my own practice. And so you are, as always, a wealth of knowledge. And, and on behalf of Dialogues listeners, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Dr. Turing. I've learned a lot about AKs from you and look forward to following your work and advancing its therapeutic options. Thanks again, Dr. Turing, and we hope to have you on again in the future with more updates for our listeners. Well, it was a pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you to Almoral for supporting this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.